0: I'm Bridget Metcalf. Join me each week as I chat with leaders from around the world, shining a light of global issues that affect us all so the truth may be known. Don't miss out on the conversation. Go to your favorite podcast streaming service now to subscribe to Truth Be Known. For upcoming podcasts, go to truthbeknown.org and enjoy the conversation. Hello, friends. This is Bridget and thank you for joining us today on the Truth Be Known podcast. Let me introduce you to one of the world's finest disciples, Dana Metcalf. Dana is a lead pastor of International Christian Assembly Church in Bangkok, Thailand, also known as ICA Bangkok, where he is a missionary, a teacher, and first and foremost, a discipler. This is a congregation of over 42 nationalities nestled in one of the most visited cities in the world. Bangkok, Thailand. He has been in full-time ministry for 38 years. He is one of the most dedicated in the area of character development for young men and women I've ever witnessed. Today's podcast is the first of a two-part series with Pastor Dana on the Heart of Discipleship. He has not only walked through discipleship personally, but he has mentored young disciples around the world and launched them into their destinies. Consider today's first part series of the Pastor Dana's Heart of Discipleship podcast a masterclass on the paramount subject for making and releasing disciples. Enjoy the conversation as we dive into this week's episode of Truth Be Known. Well, it's really good to have on Truth Be Known today, one of my favorite disciplers in all the world, and one of the ones that I know from the inside out that this is the heart of who he is, and it is my husband, Dana Metcalf. And so I want to invite him to the show today. So just for a fun note of fact, what would be the funnest thing that we've done in 28 years, uh, according to Dana Metcalf? What's the funnest thing that you and I have done?
1: Uh, The first uh, memory that comes to my mind is when I taught you how to fish, and we go on a couple of fishing trips. When I was getting frustrated with your fishing abilities, and that was a discipleship moment, at least I thought it was, of trying to teach you how to uh, cast a fishing pole. And then the truth be known, at the end of the day, Bridget would end up catching more fish than than I did. And uh, I think those are some of the funnest and, and the funniest moments that, that we've had together on the banks of a lake fishing.
0: That is very true. You did teach me how to love to fish. And I still don't cast very well, but I never really learned that well from you. But somehow... I'm able to catch fish, even though I didn't truly master that. So that is true. I want to say after knowing you for all these years, and actually we've known each other more than 28 years. uh, We've known each other for over 30 now. One of the things that I remember when I first was hearing Dana Metcalf's name, when we were just starting to get to know each other and dating is that people would always say to me, that you were very teachable and humble man, and that I saw the skill of discipleship in you back then. And I wanna ask you a question today, like what got you started in discipleship? Was this something that you just always had a passion for when you were young, or was it something that was birthed out of a need?
1: You know, I don't think I really understood what discipleship was. I mean, growing up in the church, I've heard the word used over and over again. And really, I think in my perception growing up, it was just it was about learning and sitting under a teacher, gaining more knowledge and everything. And when I graduated from college and um, actually started my ministry in South Asia, in my first year of ministry is where I really discovered that I had never really been discipled. And I think it was in that first year of ministry that I fully understood what discipleship was, but realizing, That I never really experienced that. What I experienced is what I would call kind of a desktop discipleship where most students are sitting in the classroom, really not having a relationship with the instructor or very little relationship with the instructors and uh, just gathering information. But I knew what was lacking was formation in my life. And I really desired that. And with the students that I was teaching in my first year of ministry in South Asia, I realized that I was just giving them information as well as a teacher, kind of like what I experienced. One of the students really brought to my attention something I'll never forget. It's like, you know, we want more than just information. Would you do life with us, spend time with us even outside the classroom. That's where I realized this is something that Jesus did so well with the disciples. There was a lot of teaching, a lot of life lessons as he discipled them, but they did life together. And there was more than just information. There was formation taking place. And so in my story, after a year of being on the mission field and coming back, I went to my pastor and mentor and asked him a question that I think he was shocked with at first, a college graduate, a year of experience in ministry, and basically just asked, uh, would you disciple me?
0: So- when you made this discovery, I mean, how did you make it? Were you just not having the fruitfulness in ministry that first year that you were on the mission field or what was it that made you realize I need this desperately
1: well it was really a powerful moment at the end of the school year I had 11 uh, students in my class they're all Bengali students yeah. in Bangladesh where I was serving and I felt like I just wasn't connecting very closely with them other than just the classroom so I arranged a, a meeting at my apartment invited them all over for dinner one to just be more personal with them I prayed earnestly about that meeting I remember I felt like I'd really speaking to me just to wash their feet. And what I was about to encounter was something of violating a cultural principle as well as other things as well. And so when I had dinner with them afterwards, we met together, I, I asked them, you know, would you let me wash your feet tonight? And it was kind of a way of ending that school year before they went back to their villages to do ministry. And of course, with my expectation, I knew that they probably would resist and they all did resist and say, no, that this is Bangladesh. We, we don't allow that. You're the teacher. Uh, you don't touch our feet. Culturally, you know, you just don't do that. And they would they pulled their feet underneath the chairs and, and they just basically said, no way. But I shared out of the scripture what Jesus did. And it's probably the most powerful discipleship moment in, in his ministry before he went to the cross. And he left them with one teaching, one act of service that they would never forget. And I believe that it was transformational for them and for the rest of their ministries. And so I basically insisted after sharing the scriptures of what Jesus did with the disciples. And I started with the first young man, pulled his feet out from under the chair and just began to wash his feet, violating cultural principles. But yet I knew it was kingdom. And Through that experience, he began to weep and I went down with every student and it turned into being one of the most powerful transformational moments for them. And after that, uh, the relationship changed between us. And I feel like something was formed that could have never been formed in the classroom.
0: So once you had this experience with washing these young men's feet. Did that open your eyes that you actually needed the same concept? You needed that discipleship, that breakthrough that you have just gotten with them?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And when I went back uh, after that first year of service, I explained with my pastor and mentor, and he said to me, he said, you know, what you're saying is very true. You can't reproduce something you have not yet experienced. And he goes, you've been in the classroom mode of teaching, but you've never had... Had somebody really just uh, impart to you and pour in and be that mentor? Well, he was traveling at that time. He had stepped down from his church and was traveling as an evangelist around the country. And he allowed me to actually travel in his motorhome. I slept on the floor of his motorhome for six months, and we tra- and traveled around with him. I basically carried his briefcase. And during the day, before he would do meetings, in the evening he started to mentor me, and there was formation that began to take place. It was an impartation. And true discipleship began to happen. It was the most exciting moments of my life in ministry that really changed me. And I wanted to experience, and people would shake their head when they would see me given six months to that, but they didn't fully understand that that was exactly what I was missing.
0: What was some of those life lessons, like, if you could sum up that six-month period, what were some of the things that you took away from that that have just left a handprint on your ministry now?
1: The first thing that I learned through that, that I felt called out by God, but also by my mentor and I think that's exactly what uh, Jesus did when he went to these potential disciples that nobody seemed to notice they were just common men but he he called them out to a higher purpose and uh, basically just said follow me. And so with my mentor it was really like that. He's like, "Well, if you're willing to follow me around in a motorhome when I travel and do ministry, I think this can happen." And I think that every believer needs to understand this that there's a voice calling from God himself, "Come and follow me." And That's what Jesus did with those potential disciples. That's what he's even saying to to each and every individual who has never gone through discipleship. Come and follow me.
0: Well, how is it possible though, you know, in that time, You were able to take six months of your life, and that's a huge investment, half of a year. I'm sure it was a financial commitment. How can you advise people now to do that very same thing and follow the Lord?
1: Uh, I would do like I did, you know, and pursue a potential mentor, disciple, or who will be willing to give you one-on-one time, whatever setting that is, I don't think the setting is so much as important as the relationship that is cultivated where you can ask uh, open-ended questions and and you really become transparent about your own life and uh, aspirations and dreams, as well as your weaknesses as well. I think one of the things that was really remarkable of that experience is I was able to understand that God wanted to transform my weaknesses into my greatest strengths That was one of the first principles that my mentor taught me is like, let's just don't talk about your strengths, which you have many but I'd like you to share with some of your insecurities and weaknesses so that in this discipleship process, those things can become your greatest strengths in your life and ministry. And through the discipling uh, mode that we will go through, I think you can discover that and really see the benefit of mentoring and discipleship.
0: So when that six-month period was over, what did the future look like for you?
1: Well, uh, that's where I I prepared. I went back to South Asia, to continue my ministry there. But again, went back with a whole different approach. I, I still did classroom teaching that was informational. Then I began to spend individual time with my students as well. I actually went to where they lived, where they were from, the places where they wanted to go do ministry. And I think one of the greatest compliments I experienced from many of those students is they would say among each other, you know, they called me Brother Dana. I didn't really have a title at that time. And uh, they said, you know, Brother Dana, his his skin is so white. And they would make jokes that I was so white, they'd have to wear sunglasses because of the glare but they was said you know his heart is brown and it was a great compliment because i began to do life with them even outside the classroom i began to ask probing questions about their life and things that they had gone through many of them have been severely persecuted for becoming a christian especially from the hindu and muslim backgrounds and as i heard some of their stories it uh, it really touched my heart and created some very unique discipling moments with them.
0: So how has this transformed not only your time on the mission field in Bangladesh, but how has this formed your ministry in general? And not just your ministry, but your even personal life, your fathering, being a husband, son, you know, how has this changed you?
1: Well, you know, I I don't really see in scripture where it talks about making or forming converts, but Jesus does give a clear directive about making disciples informing forming disciples. So it's always been my objective and goal, even with my two sons, uh, with my team and ministry leadership team is really seeing formation take place and developing close enough relationships with them where there can be that impartation and that mentoring that goes on. And so that's always been a priority. And um, I've seen the the fruit with my sons and many of my leaders as well, that if I can reproduce myself in them and really walk them through discipleship principles, it's a very fulfilling, gratifying experience.
0: Yeah, and... In this truth Be Known series we're doing on the heart of discipleship, I'm actually going to have you be doing two podcasts with us, but I would like to ask you if you could give me two principles of what you do in discipleship with people, and then in the next podcast we can go over the other principles, but give me those two principles and how you put them into practice, how you see the transformation take place. You know, how do you do this?
1: Bridget, you know, I'm a preacher. So when you say, give me two, then I'm automatically going to give you three. Is that okay? Mm -hmm. Okay. (laughs) Actually, there's three things then that I, I would share. The first one is people want someone to believe in them. It's so critical. And I think that Jesus did this so well when he said, called them out and said, come and follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. He communicated something to them that was very unique in the sense, that they knew that he believed in them, that they could even do more than what they were doing, and that he can make them fishers of men, he can make them men of God, leaders that would impact their generation. I think it begins there, just believing in people, and I still use that phrase with my my sons and even those in ministry that I'm surrounded with. Just making that statement that I believe in you, God believes in you, I believe in you, is a very powerful force because people want somebody to believe in them. I think this is what makes Great coaches and leaders and supervisors and great dads and great pastors is they believe in their people and uh, they can draw out of them things that the people themselves never thought that they could do or, or feel. Uh, I think that's the first principle. There's many ways of doing that through affirmation and challenge and discovering, helping them discover things in their life that they never thought were possible. The second part of discipleship, which I think is the most focused, but yet they don't go beyond that, is is the building part. And that's where there's information and teaching, obviously, which is very, very important. But discipleship is about building character even more than just gifting and talent. And so I spend a lot of time in mentoring talking more about character development and helping them build their character even more than their abilities and talents and what they desire to do. So character building is a big part of that. And there's a lot of tests that come with that, that we discuss together. The third one, which is probably one of the most enjoyable is after believing in them, building them, which is an ongoing process. And then I talk about breaking their box and that's an expression that we use, but Basically calling them out and challenging them to step outside their comfort zone, breaking their box and trying and doing some things that they didn't think possible and convincing them, look, you don't need faith for what you can do. You need faith for what you cannot do. And I'm going to ask you to do some things that are going to require just pure, raw faith and and things that you never thought you could do.
0: So believing in them, building them, and then breaking their box those three main principles. Do you have an example of any young men that you have seen this happen and it transformed their lives? Maybe if you could share an example with us.
1: Uh, there's many. I One is my favorite is a man who I consider a really close friend and who has uh, served with me for many years uh, as a leader as well. His name is Andrew, and he was a part of our college group after we were married. And so this is many years ago. But Andrew was one of those college students that would come to our Friday night gathering, always come in late, either at the end of worship or in the middle of my sermon with his girlfriend. And was very disrespectful, disruptive in the meeting. So week after week, he would come in like that. I always wondered in my mind, why does he even show up? You know, comes in late, he's disruptive. He's not engaged whatsoever. So I allowed this to go on for a few months. And out of just frustration, I thought, you know, I need to call this guy out. And it's usually not my personality to do that. But I arranged a meeting with him to meet at a, at Wendy's and to get lunch with him and kind of start from there. And so he, he showed up at a Wendy's and we met together and and we ate. And I, I didn't um, call him out right away, but I w- kind of waited for him. And he's like, well, hey, hey, man, what did you want to meet about? Did you, is there something you want to talk about? And so when he kind of opened up with that question. I said, well, Andrew, there really is something that I, I want to talk to you about. I want it, but I'd like to begin by asking you a question. And the question was, what are you doing with your life? And he looked at me perplexed. Like He said, what do you mean by that? And I said, well, let me say it again. What, what are you doing with your life? And I asked it a second time. And again, he didn't know how to respond or didn't really have an answer. So I kind of answered for him. I said, I, I can see from your expression, you really don't know what to say you don't really have an answer for me, which that's what I thought you would respond with, but let me answer it for you. And then I just basically begin to tell him about how he comes into the meeting late. He's disengaged. He's disruptive. I'm his girlfriend. And I, you know, and I experienced this frustration with him as a leader and, uh, and he just looked shocked. And I just, I called him out in a very pastoral way. Let him see how you know his behavior was, and then I paused and said, "Well, what do you think?" And he just looked at me and he said, "You know what? You're right." He said, "You're absolutely right." I think I could tell he respected the fact that I was just really honest with him. And I said, "Well, Andrew, you have incredible potential. You've grown up in the church like I have. You have so many talents and abilities." And I said, "But you seem to be just wasting your future, and you're not taking anything serious." even the things of God. And so I began to challenge him. And I basically was letting him know that I believe in you. I don't believe in your behavior as productive, but I do believe in you as an individual, your potential that is there and how that potential could be realized. So we had a big long conversation and I think he was really surprised and he asked me after that part of the conversation, what do you think I should do? And I thought, well, I'm just going to go for it. I said, well, I think the first thing you need to do is dump your girlfriend. <laughs> and he and he said, "Okay," without hesitation because I knew it wasn't a serious relationship. He Didn't take anything serious in life, you know, including that relationship. He's like, okay. And so I just kept going with it. I said, I'd like you to show up on before our gathering an hour early and serve and be a part of our prayer meeting. I want you to sit on the front row and be engaged in worship and be focused. So I gave him a whole list and I don't know if he'll do this, but the next Friday he came an hour early. He sat on the front row. He began to engage. He dumped his girlfriend before he came to that next meeting, which I that surprised me as well. And so I was quite amazed. And to make a very long story short, he ended up becoming a worship leader in our group. He traveled with me on many mission trips. And God began to really move in his life. And I met with him every, every Friday at the University of Arizona at a pizza parlor. We met and we began this discipleship journey together. And for a couple of years, I did that with him. And now today he is an incredible leader in his local church. He heads up the men's ministry. He's a worship leader still in so many of the areas of his life that he uh, has been outstanding in. And I think that's one of the great stories. And I just was bold enough to call him out and believe in him. And then God really did such an incredible work in his in his heart.
0: Yeah. And I, I'm actually a witness to a lot of that. And Realized too, I, I remember the transformation that took place in you know, Andrew's life where he loved God, he was a believer, but he wasn't taking it seriously. And he needed that discipleship to be transformed, to be wholehearted in the things of God. So I actually was a great witness to see that transformation and see how discipleship literally changed the course of Andrew's life. Let me just ask you one question before we conclude today, and we're going to be doing a two-part series on this, so we'll have you back again in the next week. But I want to ask you, and I think this would be a great topic for many fathers out there, and not just pastors, but fathers and leaders, but I want to know your art of discipleship with your own sons. I know it's probably the same process, but many fathers don't know that they have the ability to disciple their own children and to really mentor them. How have you done that and what does that look like? Is it the exact same method or, you know, how do you do it differently? How do you do this with your children?
1: A great question. I I think, you know, use the same principles, even with your own sons. But one principle that is vitally important, especially with our sons, as well as others outside our family, is the principle of bonding. I don't believe you can be fully effective and complete without bonding with the person that you're actually going to be discipling. And with my sons, I mean, that that was really important. And the way that I bonded with them is based on our youth pastor. Years ago, that did a seminar for parents on how to be more effective in parenting their teenagers. I went to it even before my boys were teenagers just to hear what he had to say so that I could prepare myself And my boys were very young. And I'll never forget, he said, they did a a nationwide survey about what is the the one thing that uh, teenagers want from their parents, the number one thing through this large survey. And nobody in the room got it right. I didn't even get it right because most of them said, well, they're teenagers, probably the number one thing they want from their parents is to hear "I, I love you or something like that. That wasn't it at all the number one thing he said is that teenagers said across the board is I just want my parents to listen to me. And it really impacted me when I heard that. And a week after that, I begin to go to the boys' school. I would take one of them out at lunch hour and take them to a restaurant, something they really liked, McDonald's, whatever it was. And I just sat and listened to them. and I begin to just to bond with them more so, than I had ever bonded with them before. Of course, it was special. They got to go out of school for an hour and during their lunch hour, their dad would pick them up. And I just listened to them, ask them questions. A lot of times I wanted to respond, but I didn't really respond that much. I just let them talk. So I think it really was important to create a real bonding relationship with them in the very beginning before discipleship moments took place. It helped me win, win credibility with them and being a good listener. And, and I think that was really the beginning of something great That when I did begin to mentor them more fully and talk about life's lessons, they were much more open to listen to me because I was more open to listening to them in the beginning. That was a key.
0: What about some of the difficult times like when they became teenagers or they're wrestling to be young men and maybe they're not really wanting to hear from you as much? What did you do at that point?
1: I sent them to you, if you don't remember (laughs) right now. No, just being funny. Well, wow, that's a great question. It again, it was just it was the listening and and the the patient patient listening. I, I used the same method. You know, I would ask them probing questions like, "Is there something wrong?" or "How do you feel about this?" And I would let them know when I you know wasn't pleased uh, about something, but I was patient with them and and I still continued the process of spending time with them and just listening and let them talk and just really the same approach just deepening that bond with them. If you remember our youth pastor at that time as well, gave great advice. It's like, as long as your kids are still talking to you and being transparent with you, he said, that's the most important thing. You can get through any challenge that they go through or any rebellious season that they might go through if they're still talking to you. So that was really important. And and they did, they were always pretty open and transparent. They were still talking to me, even through the difficult times.
0: Yeah. I think too, I think one of the things that we also try to stress with our kids that not only we weren't the only disciples in their life, that we made sure that they were surrounded with really great mentors and people beyond us to speak into their lives, like their children's pastor, their youth pastor, and leaders at school, different things like that, that were godly influences that we knew that at times we weren't always the ones they were going to listen to so those that they were going to listen to were going to be positive influences
1: absolutely yeah
0: i think it's i think with parents sometimes we have to be realistic that we're not going to be the only ones that get to influence our kids lives and there's always somebody that's going to try to influence their life beyond us and we want them to be good solid sound teaching in their lives. So I think because we are disciples and you're a discipler, it was easy for you to allow other people to disciple your sons as well in that aspect. So Dana, as we're concluding today's podcast, what would be something that you would like to leave a nugget for our listeners out there about how important it is that they walk through discipleship? And what could you say to them that you feel that would be a really crucial for them and their walk to be discipled. I think
1: we'd all agree that the kingdom of God is built on relationships and discipleship is, is so relational. I mean, the whole concept and idea of discipleship is about relationship, you know, between a disciple and a mentor and Jesus himself, you know, modeled this so beautifully. One thing that I realized too, it was the disciples, this handful of men that spent this three years with Jesus in his ministry. They were the ones that turned their world upside down. I mean, they they were world changers, not because they had some special gift or whatever, but they had been discipled by the son of God. You think about that. They followed him and they adhered to his teachings. And they were the ones who really were the world changers, even after Jesus died and was resurrected. And so the relationship part of discipleship is what is so fulfilling, not only for the one enacting the discipleship, but the one receiving as well, the the bond, the relationship, the connection. And uh, you'll hear people talk all the time about, you know, my mentor or my pastor that discipled me. They'll refer back to those moments Of discipleship moments of learning that really impacted their life. And that's something that we cherish for the rest of our life. What
0: would you say to somebody that says, I want to be discipled, but I haven't been able to find a mentor or find somebody? What would you say to them to do or how to go about doing that?
1: I think that they're out there. I think those mentors and those people that are willing to disciple are out there. Sometimes we have to search a, a, a little bit harder, and it may be somebody that is unexpected. It doesn't necessarily have to be someone with a, a title in the church. Some of the best disciplers that I have encountered, they don't have a position or a title in the church I- at all. I think the first inclination is most people is like, well, I want my pastor to do this or my youth pastor or a leader or whatever, but there are... People out there, family members that are men and women of God in, in our family, older people who are retired, that have a wealth of knowledge and experience and wisdom, that have the time or some of your best opportunities, Is especially with some of the older people that would gladly meet with you on a weekly basis to listen to you and to offer wisdom and insight and begin to this discipleship process. So I would even encourage looking for retired ministers that have the extra time and the experience to be able to offer you. So there's many options, you know, with that. And I think you you can't just limit yourself to those who are fully active in the church. There's even some outside the church that are retired or semi-retired or even family members as well.
0: I know years ago when we were first married and I was looking for a new mentor because we had switched to a different city and different location and everything like that. And I just knew that was so important for my life. I remember the mentor that I went after, she had said to me, I don't have a lot of time. If you're willing to come when I'm doing laundry and help me with that, or if you're willing to come to the grocery store with me, I can give you some of that time during those moments. And I remember thinking, I'll do it. So I would go to the grocery store or fold laundry or help clean the house just so that we could have that dialogue and we could share and exchange and I could learn and grow. And so sometimes it's, you got to fight for it a little bit too. If you really want that, you can't give up too quick, but just got to fight for it.
1: Oh yeah, I totally agree. I mean, that's what I did. I mean, I was willing to travel in the motor home with a very busy man and willing to sleep on the floor of a motorhome for all those months so that I could have some of his time during the day before he would minister in his evening services. So absolutely, I, I think you do need to fight for that and be willing to make sacrifices in order to engage in that kind of relationship with a mentor.
0: Well, I just so appreciate your time today and sharing on a topic that I feel like there's really nobody greater than yourself to share on this topic. I'm so thankful for you being willing to give some of these nuggets. And we look forward to the next podcast that we can have you share even more of your knowledge in this area of the heart of discipleship. So as we're closing out on this a podcast today, would you close us in a word of prayer and pray over our audience that there will be more disciples, that we will make more disciples, and that people will walk in this concept of heart of discipleship.
1: Thank you, Bridget. I just want to say you're the most beautiful podcast host I've ever worked with, so thank you, <laughs> and I would be more than happy to pray. Thank you for the opportunity. Father, we, we love you, that you're such a relational God, and Lord, we are just compelled uh, with so much love and adoration by the fact that you believe in us and the way that you called out the disciples and said, come and follow me. Lord, I hear that same call in this generation, come and follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Father, we thank you for our audience and we pray that their hearts would be encouraged and inspired today by the principle of discipleship. And Lord, that they would continue in this journey, even themselves. And we give you all the glory for your great works in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Thank you, Pastor Dana, for joining us today on Truth Be Known. And thank you for your investment and dedication into the countless lives to see the next generation walk in the ways of God and be men and women of character. And on a personal note, thank you for discipling our most precious commodity, our sons, Jamin and Jensen. I've seen your handprint all over their lives, and you have set them up for success because of your commitment to them. To my Truth Be Known audience out there, I can't emphasize enough how vitally important it is for every believer to seek out discipleship in their lives. The Bible is so clear that we are to make disciples. And I encourage you to join us each week for this four-part series on the Heart of Discipleship. Thank you, friends, for tuning in today to Truth Be Known. And go to truthbeknown.org or email us at truthbeknown.org at gmail.com to find out more about our future episodes and guests that will be joining us each week. You can always find us on your favorite streaming service. And don't forget to let the truth be known.